0: And if you sort of look at yourself remotely, you go, okay, I'm the protagonist in a great struggle. I'm living an amazing story, right? They don't make movies or write books or television series about like people who have uninteresting, non-challenging lives. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast,
1: a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a
0: commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Welcome to another fun episode of
1: Flip My Phone Podcast. Gosh, we have been having some incredible guests in the last few months. Uh, We have Seth Godin, Godin, we have Daniel Pink, we have Kim Scott. And and all in all, I think there's been a lot of great feedback. And one of my good friends, Brian Birch, he shared a profile of a company that I've never heard about before and a person that I did not really follow until very recently. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this will be an incredible, incredible episode for everybody. So who I have with me today is Rick Smith. He's the CEO of Exxon, formerly Taser. They're a public company. They've saved over 100,000 people's lives, literally. And then you will hear why I'm saying that in, in a second. And he is also writing his book, The End of Killing. Uh, I think it's supposed to come in a few weeks or, or months. So there's a whole bunch of things we're going to go and cover around entrepreneurship, the, the idea of like how, how they became the technologists for law enforcement, the whole idea behind that. And this whole idea of like, well, why this book and, and how did they come about with this idea? So Rick, welcome to the show, man. Awesome. I'm super pumped to be here. All right, dude. So uh, we always love to start with a fun fact. I don't think I gave you a heads up on that, but I know you just flew in and you're like, man, this is this is crazy. So we're not doing video, we're doing audio at this point. But I think I'd love to hear a fun fact about yourself. Fun
0: fact about me. Uh, one. That People find somewhat interesting is I take about 50 to 60 dietary supplements uh, every night before I go to bed. Wow. You know, it's, a, it's a little, little out there, but each year as I get older, I try to do add one thing to sort of my health and longevity routine. Yeah. And a few years ago I read Ray Kurzweil, uh, his book on longevity. He's a, you know, one of the senior leaders over at Google. And I figured, Hey, this guy's way smarter than I am. So I just looked up all the supplements, put them on auto order on Amazon and, uh, Take them every night before I go to bed.
1: Wow. But that's a lot, right? I mean, that is a lot. It's so crazy because you put it online and I'm seeing people respond in different directions, right? Some are like, wow, that's great. That's awesome that you're taking care of yourself. And I see some people saying like, you got to be crazy to do that kind of stuff. Like, what do you say to that?
0: Yeah, you know, well, as I went through uh, Ray's book, each one of these supplements, you know, serves... A purpose in reducing statistically, so the statistical odds of bad things. So, for example, one of us is selenium, right? And apparently people who take selenium have a lower risk of prostate cancer by, I don't know, like 30 or 40%. Well, I know people who've had prostate cancer, and it was not fun. So, you know, as I look at that, I say, well, this costs me a couple cents a day, you know, and takes me a moment to take it. Huh, it seems like it might be worth it. So, you know, I'll never know if it made a difference or not. But if I can lower my odds of really awful things happening, uh, and, and if you think about it, like all the stuff we stuff into our bodies now, you know, just because it it tastes good, we eat all sorts of stuff that's just undeniably bad for us. So taking, you know, a few moments a night, I've gotten a point where I can take, you know, my fish oil and all these different supplements in a in a few handfuls. So it takes me about a minute, right. and I figure that's, you know, a minute, maybe, you know, 100 bucks, 150 bucks a month, which, yeah, you know, it's a little bit of spend, but. You know, if I can avoid one bout of prostate cancer or some other awful thing, it'll pay for itself. Man,
1: that
0: that is great. How long have you been doing that? Uh, this one I've been doing
1: about five years. Oh wow! So you do have it, it's not like yesterday. So you've been five years, and clearly you're doing you're in great shape and you're doing well. So clearly you have data to show that things are great. So I I wish you all the very best. <laughs> Thanks. All right. So tell us a little bit about Exxon, uh, formerly Taser. I was just watching your video and if, if people haven't looked at it, they should go check it out your, you just, the story is so, so, so interesting. So I'd love to, for you to share a little bit about Exxon and, and the whole idea, how it came about. And then I want to jump into a moment in time where you were in your apartment crying as a, you know, because that, and that's a story I've shared publicly. And I feel like a lot of people see the glory and and the, the fact that, well, it's a public company the growth and all that stuff and all the fun things. But you are someone who actually have openly shared some of the things that are so deep and people shy away from it. But you have been very open and vocal. I love that about you. So if you could just quickly share what Exxon does, what's your purpose, why you started this thing, and then take us to that moment where you were in your apartment, not knowing what to do next.
0: Yeah, so the journey started about 26 years ago. I was in graduate school in Europe. And two of my friends were shot and killed back in Arizona in the United States, uh, not by some gangster or some career criminal, but by a businessman who had a gun in his car and a temper. And my two friends, you know, they played high, they played high school football with me. They were playing college football. And, uh, you know, they occasionally got in a scuffle. And I could just see how this thing probably unfolded where the situation spun out of control. This, this other man takes a gun out. Next time, my two friends are dead and he's spending his life in prison. And what struck me in talking with the Europeans about when you're outside the United States looking in, you you sort of realize, man, we we live in a place that's maybe more violent than it really needs to be. And the thing that just slapped me in the face was, this is ridiculous that this person chose a weapon that fires lead shrapnel at people to defend himself. But the fact is, that's the best we can do today. We're still using the same technology we used to fight the Revolutionary War 250 years ago. When, like, transportation was maybe you'd ride a horse if you were lucky, right? Or medicine was, you know, a couple shots of whiskey and a a saw. Like, every other industry has been overwhelmingly changed by technology. And yet, the art of self-defense is still shooting bullets at people. And so, I started a company. I found this former NASA scientist. There's a whole story we could go down there. we had been working on energy weapons since the 1960s with the idea we wanted to simply bring Captain Kirk's Star Trek phaser to life. Because if we have those types of weapons that could legitimately stop a threat, allow you to get away and not have to hurt anybody, the world would be a much better place. And so I started this company. It was originally called Taser. We still make the Taser weapons. Taser is a trademark of ours. But we also do all the police body cameras. And we host the largest cloud software data set on Microsoft Azure today uh, in their government cloud because we host all those body camera videos. We're at about 60 million gigabytes of police video. Uh, and so, when you do things like software and cameras, the name Taser is—it's it, not broad enough. It's very specific to electric weapons. And uh, so, yeah, we're p- trading on the Nasdaq. We've gone from a garage to now a four billion dollar publicly traded company, and uh, we're well on our way to making the bullet obsolete. I've set the—I've—I've I've, I've set the goal that we in the next decade that we will have an energy weapon that is non-lethal and that outperforms a police pistol in reliably stopping a threat. Wow. Well, I mean,
1: I have to ask you that, what do you think of all the, your views on all the, the mass shootings and things that happen in, in this public? Because that just has seemed like has become, again, out of control.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, so in, in, in my new book, The End of Killing, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a manifesto where I'm very publicly coming out and saying, you know, okay, we need to think differently about these topics. Because right now, I mean, you don't even have to watch the news to know how this plays out. You're going to hear one camp saying, we have way too many guns. We should take the guns away or have much stricter gun control. And then you are going hear another camp that says, that's BS. We have a right to own guns. If everybody had a gun to defend themselves, then like the good guys would outnumber the bad guys. And nobody changes their mind. We yell at each other. People get very angry. I look at this and I say, well, why are we only thinking in terms of guns? One of the more radical concepts I put forward uh, in the book was the idea of why don't we create small automated systems, non-lethally armed drones that are operated by police dispatchers that you could pre-emplace around a city. Now, it, you know, obviously, people are going to have some concern. You don't want drones randomly flying around tasing people. So you would want to have good technology controls to make sure that there's administrative oversight. But next time there's a mass shooting, instead of waiting for a SWAT team to show up, if you could deploy, rapidly deploy small automated systems that don't kill people but could incapacitate them. I think we could have a very different response profile rather than all of us turning ourselves into Dirty Harry. Yeah, it, it is un, unbelievable
1: for me to be quite honest. Like I, I really don't understand, and uh, I feel like we all have a moral responsibility to address this as a problem um, and not overlook it because it seems like that's become a routine in in our great nation.
0: Um, well, yeah, so- what 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 the have to say? I was shocked. You know, so in, in the book I. Um, I used it as an opportunity to float some of our more futuristic ideas, and the one that I expected would get the most negative reaction was the idea of non-lethal drones. Mm-hmm. And yet, that you know, we we launched the book two weeks ago, and that has gotten the most positive response because, like, wow. I mean, people are looking at it as okay, this is a fresh approach. We certainly don't want to build killer robots, but if we yeah. were thoughtful about building systems that could, you know, that could rapidly take down a, a gunman at one of these mass shootings it's worth investigating.
1: Totally. Oh man, it. That, that, I mean, thank you for putting it out there. Thank you for being a real responsible citizen and putting an idea out there as opposed to just the problem uh, that we all are, are facing every day. So, so one, one of the things to it, I want, I want to take you back to that moment because a lot of the people listening to this podcast are, in leadership roles. And, and as an entrepreneur myself, I think and talk as much possible about transparently about the challenges of, raising capital or challenges of building a great team or not having enough money in the bank and and still running the company and have been positive. But at the same time, like just being as transparent, and authentic as I can, you have been really, especially in the last few weeks as I've got to know more about you through all the videos that you've shared online is man, you've been very open. So one of the things you talk about is the fact that there was a time, I think, I don't know if it was five or seven years into your journey of a startup where you found yourself crying in your apartment or something like that. Could you take us back to that moment and, and what was going on in your,
0: in your heart? Yeah. So we started the company with this vision of creating an alternative to the bullet. And we, we launched our first taser weapon and for a variety of reasons, it was a commercial failure. We then sort of scrambled and we were, we were sort of desperate to find revenue to keep the dream alive, so to speak. And, it was almost a gimmick. We did a car security product and it also bombed. And this was, so by 99, we had had two failed product launches and we were, we were totally out of money and we had never raised any outside funding. We had tried. My, my father had done a startup in Silicon Valley in the eighties. And so he was funding taser, he and one of his friends, and we had gone and talked to all the venture capitalists and all the private equity guys and but as you can imagine, when I walk in the room and they say, you're doing what? You're going to build electric weapons? Are you crazy? Like, just the liability profile. And they came up with all the things that could go wrong. And I said, yeah, but, you know, God, we live in a world where we shoot and kill 40,000 Americans every year. Like, this is a big problem that is, you know deserves to be solved. Anyway, we couldn't raise any outside money. We get to 90. This is like early 1999. And I realized we did not have enough cash to make it. And I went to my dad. and I said, hey. You gotta stop putting money into this. Like, you know, you, you basically you're in your sixties now, you know, you, you've put in way more than you should. At which point he came clean with me, said, Hey Rick, guess what? I actually only have about five hundred thousand dollars left and we owe the bank a million and a half and I guaranteed the loan. So if you do the math, if if we fold the company, they're gonna come and take everything. So I said, Oh Jesus, you know, okay. Uh, so he said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put the last 500,000 in because it's the house's money anyway. And we're going to, we're going to put it on the table and we're going to figure this thing out. And he got the other investor, his friend to match the 500. It was, so we had $1 million to do one more pivot. Uh, and that was where we would create a new higher powered taser and go into the police market because we felt our thesis was that the technology needed credibility. And I mean, we barely made it. When, by early 2000, when we were launching in the police market, we had no money for marketing. Our whole marketing plan was a former Marine in a Winnebago going across the country doing demos. We had bills. Some of our bills were a year past due. I mean, it was brutal. And then out of all that came our moments of greatness. So the moment I shared when I was crying was uh, in my apartment. It, you know, I sound like a total wish when I keep saying it like that. But you know, hey, I was, I was sitting there and I realized I had wiped my parents out. And not only was I like a failed entrepreneur, but I had the distinction of having had the, you know, the advantage of uh, a family could afford to support me. And I took them down in the process. And it was pretty depressing thinking, not only am I going to be a failure, but, you know, I'm going to have to find some way to support my parents into their uh, retirement now. I
1: I cannot even imagine that. And Rick, again, I know this is, probably deeply emotional for you and it's probably not you know, fun repeating it as many times as you might. have. But I feel like everybody listening to this right now, hopefully there are goosebumps like like I'm feeling right now because this is the reality of trying to go and go to the distance, um, trying to keep up with the the wishes of people who love you and, and they believe in you and you at some point are like, oh God, I wish they didn't believe in me because I don't believe in myself at the moment, right? And yeah, I can imagine those moments. And then we had our share of moments like that for sure. So, so
0: one, again, thank you for sharing that. And well, you know, one thing I, I want to share there is, I love talking about it now because damn it, we made it. <laughs> you know, I, I was not proud of it at the time. But yes. uh, the one thing that sort of got me through it, I've, I've had this philosophy that I found very helpful. And I just I'll share it for any entrepreneurs that are listening. When you get to those really hard moments, when it looks like you're not going to make it, I have a little bit of an out of body experience, and this is what I did that night after I got done boohooing. I said, like, "Okay, dust myself off," and if you sort of look at yourself remotely, go, "Okay, I'm the protagonist in a great struggle. I'm living an amazing story." Right? They don't make movies or write books or television series about like people who have uninteresting, non challenging lives. Like I wouldn't want to be the guy who does a startup and six months later you know, is, is a billionaire because they just, you know, got lucky and hit some vein. I mean, yeah, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, but I far prefer, it's a much more interesting life story to have lived through the adversity. And we've, we've had a couple of those moments and I've just gotten to the point where when I'm in them, I take a step back and I look, you know what, this is my chance for greatness. This will be an amazing story. And you know what, if it blows up, well, it's a tragic end to the story, but we'll move on. And it, I don't know, I've always found that kind of energizing, where you 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 turn that into something that is a great challenge and it adds to the excitement of your life, rather than you know just getting stuck in the moment and and feeling sorry for yourself.
1: That is that is a fascinating fascinating lesson, and thank you for sharing that, Rick. Rick, um, you are obviously a CEO of a public company. When when did you guys go public? We went public in two thousand one. Two thousand one, and you, I mean I I think I recently saw. You having a tattoo on your arm around something around employee or stock? Like what was that about?
0: <laughs> so about a year and a half ago, I don't know if you remember when when Tesla announced this new compensation plan they did with Elon Musk. Yes, where of basically all yeah, over the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so my compensation committee came to me and they said, "Hey, you know, shareholders are raving about this approach where instead of CEOs just getting paid, you know." CEOs, candidly, CEOs are overpaid in general. And especially it's offensive when they get overpaid, when they suck. Like if, if you, if you suck at your job, you should get fired with no compensation. These golden parachutes are like morally offensive. Anyway. Uh, so my, my comp committee came to me and they said, what would you think about this? And so, you know, we started studying it and I, and I looked at, it and I said, man, I love it. This is, this would be great. Where basically I'd give up all my normal pay. And then I would get stock options based on basically taking the company from about 1.3 billion of market cap and 10xing it to 13 billion. And along the way I could earn back one percent of the company for every billion dollars of market cap yeah. So for me this was great. It turned it back into a new entrepreneurial story, right? Like I'm not a guy who's looking for a job, even if it's a well-paid job. I like feeling like I'm creating things. And so we did the plan for me. And then there was this awkward moment where I'm meeting with the rest of my management team and we're in front of we actually had a company meeting. And the president of the company said, hey, everybody, this is awesome. Rick's got this new compensation plan. And we need to help him hit these milestones. And I had this awkward feeling. I wanted to crawl under a rock. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. We're in front of a 1,000 people. And we're basically telling them, hey, the CEO just got this big plan. And we want you all to work yourselves to the bone to make the richest guy in the building richer. <laughs> uh, you know, That just didn't compute. So from there, I went back to our comp committee. And I said, hey, we got to find a way to to share this broadly. And so we created what we call our exponential stock plan, where uh, now most people can't afford to give up their whole salary the way that I could, but we did it where people could take a portion of their salary and trade it in for these high risk stock options, effectively, our stock units. Um, anyway, and then once we did that, uh, we, we did it so everybody in the company gets some exposure. And then, you know, people in certain salary bands could could actually reallocate their their income. Into these high-risk stock units, and then after we did that, a bunch of us went and got tattoos with the company logo on there. And then I have twelve links in this chain that, for each of the twelve performance milestones, and as we hit them, we're all going to go out and celebrate and get the markings, you know, filled in like the old World War II fighters, you know, where you put the the, uh, <laughs> the enemy logo on your plate as you knock them down. So uh, I was joking at our shareholder meeting that. I think I'm the only CEO in America that has my financial performance uh, scorecard tattooed on my arm.
1: Totally, man. It will remind you and your family of all, every day. But that—that that is so phenomenal. I feel like, again, in this day and age where people are still hiding behind and, and not talking openly about some of these really big things, like I, like in our own company, Terminus, we were one day, we were talking about this idea of like, hey, everybody should act like an owner and, and work like an owner. And why, why are they not? And And I remember having this conversation where somebody said, well, the reality is they're not owners. So, you know, get over it. And that was a great realization for us. And so now what we did was every single person in the company has some amount of stock options and and not to the level is how you're doing it. Uh, I think that's a really interesting idea that I'm going to look into. But what we do have is that every single person, as they join, they have stock options. So they have some sort of ownership in the company from day one as they walk in. So when we say we wanna act like owners, everybody's an owner at whatever level they are. And I think that has fundamentally changed many of the conversations that now we have in the company because we don't have to expect people to do different things. People are already doing different things because they know that they have invested interest. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. It's uh, it's been two weeks since uh, you've launched the book. So by the time this goes live, it's probably a couple more weeks. How's the response for your book? Uh, is it the same Is it what you're expecting?
0: Just talk us through that. Yeah, the response has been much better than I expected because I, I basically use this as an opportunity to put out some of the crazier ideas, right? I mean, I'm the CEO of a public company. So the things a public company can do have to go through a lot of risk management. And I didn't want to only talk. I didn't, number one, I didn't want it to be a corporate brochure. I was yeah. just like, hey, look at the great stuff we sell. I wanted it to be something that challenges the way we think. And in particular, I wanted to start by challenging police, which is our core customer. They've always thought of non-lethal weapons as like something you try. Well, you know, if, if, it's, if you have time and safety, you can give it a shot. But if things are really bad, you go right to your lethal weapon. Mm. And I'm challenging that presumption. And it's gone over really well as I'm meeting with officers and saying, look, what if you had a non-lethal weapon that actually was more effective? than your lethal weapon. Because yeah, the lethal weapon kills people, but it's actually not that effective at stopping somebody right now on the first shot. I mean, it takes a while for them to bleed out. I mean, actually blowing holes in people with pieces of lead is a gruesome thing. And it's not as immediate as it looks like in the movies. And I've been just amazed at how well that concept has been received. Obviously, I was a little bit nervous. You know, police rely on their guns. It is their lifeline. And I'm very careful to say, look, we're not suggesting that anyone should take your guns away. What we're suggesting is if you get something better that doesn't mean you that means you don't have to kill somebody, would you choose that first? And the overwhelming response is yes, but you gotta prove it. You've got to prove that the technology can be that good. And then surprisingly, I've also, like I said, on school safety and military affairs, I've put forth some pretty forward-leaning ideas. Uh, and I expected more blowback than I've gotten. But I think um, you know, like for example, we're not yet working on any taser-capable drones. But I wanted to put it out there in the book first to explain the rationale and in a world where, you know, putting people next to each other where they both have a gun is a very dangerous thing. If we can keep the officer at a safer distance and that gives us another chance to use non-lethal technology, because if somebody shoots the drone down, nobody really cares. We'll buy another drone. But we don't want to lose a police officer or my son when he served in Afghanistan. Right. We damn sure don't want to lose our our, our sons and daughters. So it's been really interesting how warmly received this has been across the political spectrum, which was my goal. I, I wanna stay out of the gun control debate. I wanna stay out of uh, you know, all the politics that exist today. And my main point is, look, we're not gonna get our way out of this through politics. We'll get there through creativity and invention. That's the way you know, people really solve problems.
1: I love it, man. I love it. All right. So as we come to the close, I have a whole bunch of notes I've taken. So I'm going to try to share a couple of big ideas that I've learned. And then I'll love to end this episode with you giving a challenge to everyone who is listening to this in a leadership role, um, to how they can take that to the next level, given what you have gone through, what you've done. It's, it's, you know, it's it's incredible. So think about that challenge as a wrap up with a couple of big ideas. Number one, I think everyone out there hopefully took this, this idea of like the seven years into your startup when you actually sat down and you have to tell your father, parents that, hey, look, I'm actually drawing out your savings. And I don't really have a great idea. Still, the things are not working as well. You need to stop. And they are not double downing and saying that, no, 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 we got to keep going because we already are almost there. So I think that level of trust and belief, and that just shows that, look, Nothing great ever has been created without sacrifices of people that have gone the distance and have really believed in them. And each one of us who have been remotely successful, there's always somebody who has believed in you. So harness yourself and bring people together that actually believe in you and stay close to them and, and make sure that you're as open and transparent as Rick has been with his parents when he went through those incredible, incredible journey. But great stories as you as you shared are only made up of these great moments where you have to make difficult choices and decisions. So I love love that. One of the recent articles we didn't dive deeper into, but I think you've written, is this idea that the next generation of leaders, I think you wrote in one of your recent articles, is that they're going to have an undeniable curiosity for learning. And we didn't jump into it because I think there's just so much material already, but I'll ask everybody to follow Rick on LinkedIn. He shares a lot of great stuff and also go get his book, which is already out, The End of Killing by Rick Smith. But this idea that, hey, look, you got to be curious around whatever is happening every day. And I, and I love, love that quote from you. The other part, I'm, as every leader, I think we all talk about this idea of ownership. We talk about leadership. We talk about people doing more and going over and beyond. I think you have clearly demonstrated by your own compensation and being open and public about it and and getting everybody in the organization to support that, not by saying you have to do this, but more so saying that, hey, look, you have a choice to be part of having this exponential growth in your own financial uh, stuff. So I feel like that speaks volumes for what leadership really is in today's day and age, which is authentic, transparent and just out there where people are like, oh, wow, that makes sense. Let's just give it a try. So, as a public company CEO, I think what you're doing is really setting a, a, yourself as a role model for a lot of uh, people following, including myself. So, Rick, again, thank you for doing that. What is the one challenge you'd like to share with leaders listening to this and are gasping and thinking about leadership
0: as part of their role? Yeah, I would challenge you to be vulnerable. I think what I've found over time is when i was when I was young, I had this sensation that I had to be the smartest guy in the room. I had to convey a sense that I had all the answers, and I don't think that was a very effective leadership style. Uh, and as I've grown, I've sort of learned through experimentation that like if you open up with people and say, "You know what, I don't have the answers. What do you guys think? Like you get a lot more buy-in, and I think people it humanizes you a lot more because ultimately, you know people don't need jobs to put food on the table anymore candidly. I mean unemployment is very low. People can find a plethora of different jobs, especially your best people and so really, I think I think of myself almost like the leader of a tribe It's not a hierarchy where you can order people around It's a group of people coming together that share their lives together, share their most of their working life together, working on some mission, and in that respect, you need to tap people's you know their higher order uh, needs from Maslow's pyramid, right? That uh, you can't just threaten them with, uh, you know, the loss of their job or, or, you know, basic sustenance. You need to tap into their, their sense of fulfillment. And part of it for us has been trying to design compensation plans that also let them feel like they, and truly that they do own a piece of what they're building. Uh, but I think, you know, for leaders, it's a hard one, especially for new leaders, because I remember how uncertain I was that I, I had to put on this air, I had to put on a show that I knew what I was doing. And as I've observed other people lead over the years, you typically find the fools are the ones who act like they know everything. And the wise men or wise women are the ones who are vulnerable and open and ask a lot of questions and who know that they don't have all the answers and that they're much more curious than authoritarian.
1: Love that. Love that. Rick, thank you so much for sharing so openly. This was even more fascinating than I thought of a conversation. So man, it's awesome. Keep putting out the good vibes on LinkedIn and all that stuff and really uh, good luck with your book and all the success that it might bring to you.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Ingram. Thanks for having me on today.
1: You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast.